There is no error with your audio outputs. Do not attempt to fix any sound issues. We are monitoring you with this device. We control your options and settings. We are transmitting through your internet connection, but our signal is actually entering your mind, sending electrical impulses into the very tissues of your brain. Try to stay calm. We've taken over your senses for the duration of this broadcast. You are helpless to resist. We have taken control for your own sake. There are things you must know. This is Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Well, welcome to another thrilling episode of the Paranoia Podcast. It's thrilling. <laughs> it's marvelous. It's fantastic. Marveloso. And who are you? I am Olav. I uh, publish the uh, magazine. Who are you? What, ma- what magazine, though? I, I don't uh, even know what magazine. Oh, yeah. We're confused why we're here. Uh, Paranoia Magazine. Okay. Hey, I'm Ron Patton. I'm kind of familiar with Paranoia Magazine. And, uh, well, I'm the editor. <laughs> Editor-in-chief. Oh, yes. Editor-in-chief, yes. All right. So, as uh, many of our listeners know, we took a little break. It was a sabbatical. It was a summer break. It was a summer break. That's right. Uh, Try to get some stuff done, except for publishing the magazine. Yeah. <laughs> but we made a lot of good connections, and uh, now we're all rejuvenated, invigorated, and ready to go with some great, great shows. Uh-huh. So one one of the things, dear listener, that we've discussed doing, Ron and I, is that as awesome as it is to hear us just talk and talk and talk, uh, we we're going to start to get some guests on too. Uh, so if you have any ideas, uh, let us know. You know how to get a hold of us: uh, paranoiamagazine.com, uh, Paranoia Mag on Skype, Paranoia Magazine on Facebook. Send us a message if you have an idea, um, and we will act on it. Sounds good. Yeah, we have a lot of, uh, you know, potential guests lined up. Um, you know, uh, I think Jay Dyer, who does a lot of uh, esoteric Hollywood type stuff. Um, I think he wants to come on. And uh, Jay Widener, we'll get Jay Widener on. He did the, the Kubrick mm-hmm. stuff uh, about faking the moon landing. Yeah. And we'll get some, you know, old timers like Ralph Epperson. You know, he's... He's uh, good for uh, a few really vital uh, topics relating to the conspiratorial view of history, and maybe even Jordan Maxwell will come on. But, uh, you know, we want to mix it up. We want to get people that um, may have never been on a, a show before, but have some really new and exciting revelations, whether it be uh, conspiratorial or paranormal. That's right. So we're going to try to try to mix it up a little bit and have some fun with it. So, again, if you have any ideas, uh, anybody you want to hear us talk to, uh, berate, uh, have them berate us, uh, just let us know. Or A-rate us. A-rate us. A-rate us. A-rate us. That's it. Okay. So uh, we were looking for a good topic for tonight, and I came across something that I thought is rather interesting. 
And what is that, Olaf? Well, I want to know. Yeah, inquiring minds want to know. Hey, read the book, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, like many people, um, I'm a normal schmo. Uh, back in 2001, I was working at a startup uh, in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I woke up, and uh, actually my alarm, I have two alarms. One is a buzzer, and uh, one is a, one's a radio. And so, of course, like everybody else, uh, when the buzzer went off, I turned the buzzer off because I want to go back to sleep. Sure. So 15 minutes later, the radio turned on. And I remember um, hearing news coverage of the uh, the September 11th attack on the, on the radio, but I was sleepy and half asleep, and I didn't really, I was like, oh, I don't know what this is all about. Right. <laughs> so I went back to sleep. And then when I f- finally got annoyed with the radio being on, um, I woke up. And when I woke up, I heard the news, and uh, I rolled over and and uh, tapped my wife. I said, "Hey, something's happened." And so we turned on the rate. We turned on the TV mm-hmm. and uh, started watching the coverage. And of course, like everybody else, I was shocked and dismayed and saddened and that full range of emotions that I think pretty much everybody around the world felt. But you know, if you were if you're an American in America when it happened. Obviously, uh, it, you know, it's one of those moments you don't forget. But one one thing um, that I do remember is that during the coverage, they after the planes had hit and things were falling down, they kept talking about another plane that was hijacked. And nobody seemed to know anything about it. Nobody seemed to know where it was. So uh, had a little technical difficulty there. It's going to be a little bit of a weird cut. Uh, sorry about that. But, Ow, that hurt. Damn it, Ron. Now I'm bleeding. Okay. Damn it, Ron. <laughs> Don't bleed over the paranoia magazines. We have to sell those. I know. All right. So like I was saying, um, I'm watching the coverage, and uh, you know everybody's talking about this this plane that's hijacked. Nobody seems to know anything about it. It's just hijacked, and I, you know, is I don't know. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I I don't know. Do you remember hearing about that? Ron? Um, I vaguely remember hearing something about it, but you know the thing about that particular day, you know, 9-11, there were so many spurious news reports about planes here and planes there and, you know, different versions of how the World Trade Center buildings, you know, actually collapsed, that collapsed that, you know, it was just sort of like you're in a daze because you just don't know what to believe. But no, I did hear something about that, but then it just sort of, you know, went poof and you just didn't really hear about it anymore. That's right. It just vanished and everybody just stopped talking about it. Right. Well, it turns out that there was another plane that appeared to have been hijacked, but wasn't. Mm-hmm. So, Korean Airlines Flight 85 from flying from Korea uh, to the United States um, had some very odd things happen. Now, it had taken off from Incheon, 
Um, it was destined for JFK in New York. Uh, it's a big old 747, big ass plane. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> there's a so basically what happened was is that everything is all good and happy, and then the planes hit the towers at 8:46. American Airlines 11 uh, flight 11 flies into the North Tower. 9:03, uh, flight 175 hits the South Tower. 9.37, Flight 77 crashes into the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Okay. 9.59, the South Tower collapses. 10.03, Flight 93 crashes in Pennsylvania. And that's the one that was supposedly headed for the White House, where there's, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Did it crash? Did we shoot it down? You know, right. There's a lot of schools that thought about that. Mm-hmm. But... um Basically, nothing really happens after that. 10, 10, 10, the, a wall at the Pentagon collapses. Ten twenty eight, North Tower collapses. Now, a very interesting thing happens at 11, 11.08 a.m. Eastern Time. These numbers are all mm-hmm. Eastern, Eastern Time. Mm-hmm. The pilot of Flight 85, this, South, this Korean Airlines flight, he sends a code via basically a text message that's sent over satellite back to the headquarters of Korean Airlines. He sends a code HJK, which apparently in in uh, in, in um, Korean Airlines, that's a code they use for being hijacked. Mm-hmm. Okay. Once that happened, nothing happened. Well, nothing happens for the next 52 minutes. Right. Okay. Why? I mean, why? I don't know. Nothing. Nothing happens. Hmm. Finally, an air traffic controller had seen, I think it was an air traffic controller, had seen the code go across, Mm -hmm. and he thought to himself, well, that's not good. So he calls NORAD. Mm -hmm. So NORAD sits on it for another hour. Okay? Right. It's now 1 p.m. Finally, after an hour, uh, NORAD scrambles two F-15s from Elmendorf in Alaska because they're they're flying toward Alaska. I forgot to mention that. Mm-hmm. They're because the way the the flight goes, they're they're heading toward Alaska. So two fighters come out of Elmendorf and are sent to go intercept the aircraft. So the at one twenty four, the air traffic controllers call the plane. Now, mind you, the the original code was sent at 11.08. Okay. okay. So Eastern time, right? Eastern time. So two okay. and a half hours later, right, the air traffic controllers call the pilots and they say, hey, are you being hijacked? No real response. They say, if mm-hmm. you are being hijacked... You need to you need to key a code into your transponder. Mm-hmm. You need to squawk to send this code seventy five hundred. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Well, they did it. So the pilot sends this code seventy five hundred right after the air traffic controller told him to do it. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> He basically acknowledged. He, they told him, "If you're not being hijacked, don't send the code. If you're being hijacked, <laughs> send the code." Well, he so he sends the code. Jeez. Okay. Right. So after that happens, the governor of Alaska is told to is told that there is a possible uh, hijacking in progress headed toward Alaska. Okay. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, NORAD 
contacts the Coast Guard and tells them, hey, there's a hijacked aircraft heading toward Alaska right now. And so they're they're all talking about potential threats, right? Now, mm-hmm. the governor of Alaska ordered the evacuation of all potential <laughs> targets. I mean, it's a very wise thing to do considering what had just happened. Sure. The, the Coast Guard tells uh, tells all the tankers that are that are f- basically filling up with oil in Valdez and all these other uh, terminals that they need to stop immediately and go out to sea. Mm-hmm. So the Coast Guard basically orders all tankers to head out to sea. Now, you got to think about that for a minute. Mm-hmm. This is Alaska. These are oil fields. There's a lot of tankers. Mm-hmm. P- picture in your mind all of them turning off the pump and heading out to sea as fast as they can, like at flank speed, like full power. Right. Okay. So at 2.45, so they, they basically de- determine that they don't want this plane in Alaska, okay? Mm-hmm. So the pilots are ordered, and this is kind of an interesting thing. Apparently, the pilots were ordered that if it, if it crossed the airspace into Alaska outside of this very narrow corridor, right, because mm-hmm. they were trying to get it into Canada, make it the Canadians' problem, right? So they give, them this very, they give the pilot a very narrow corridor, and they tell, the, they tell the fighter pilots, hey, if this thing deviates from that, just blow it out of the sky. Because mm-hmm. it's still over the water, right? It's still over the water. Mm-hmm. So, and, and what's interesting about that is that supposedly that orders to shoot down aircraft during 9-11 had mm-hmm. to be approved by the president or the vice president. Now was that just for that particular day, or uh, that was is that some, that's, something implemented prior to that? No, that's the rules of engagement for that day. So all the fighters that that were sent out to run air cover over all the major cities. I mean, in San mm-hmm. Francisco, we had F 18s that were doing circles out of Lemoore, but you know, Chicago, New York. Well, New York, obviously, but Chicago, Los Angeles, Seattle, they all had fighters doing circles around them, right? Well, Mm -hmm. the rules of engagement were that that before you could fire upon a commercial airliner that you believed to be hijacked, you had to get the okay from the president. That is crazy. Doesn't that add enough sufficient suspicion that something was amiss on 9-11? Well, there are a lot of things that add suspicion that something was amiss. In I know, but I mean, to me, it's I mean, like, when the air traffic uh, controllers at JFK called up and said, hey, you know, we think these planes are hijacked and they're, they're heading toward the city, and NORAD was like, really, is this a test? <laughs> I mean, the NORAD response was, um, is this a simulation? Are we having a drill? I mean, that right. alone is enough to add some suspicion. And that, what was the president doing at that particular time as well, right? right. Reading a book? He was reading some, a book. Yeah, with some kids. So, yeah, in yeah. a school. Right. Right. Okay. Got it. Okay, mm-hmm. so so they tell the pilot, fly on this very narrow course. We're going to land you in a place called Whitehorse. Whitehorse is the capital of the Yukon Territory. Mm-hmm. I've been there. There's not a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been there. It's an awesome place. You know, it's, right. a, it's a cool town. You know, mm-hmm. land of the midnight sun and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But they're they're like, you're going to land your 747 there. If you deviate from the course, you know, we're going to shoot you down. So the pilot lands the plane. Mm-hmm. Okay. The plane is circled by the by the the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The Mounties encircle the whole plane. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean they're 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 playing for keeps. 
you know, heavily armed, ready to go. They think the plane is hijacked. Okay. So they, the the passengers start to deplane. They're all met by the RCMP, automatic weapons, the whole thing. <clears throat> They're moved into a holding area. The last people to come off the plane, which is traditional, the last people to come off the plane are the pilot and the co-pilot. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're and they're escorted off the plane, you know, guns drawn. Okay, right. So so they're interrogated after this happens. They're in, they're heavily interrogated. Okay, mm-hmm. and it turns out the plane was never hijacked. There were no hijackers. Right, that they said there was a miscommunication. That they have no idea why people thought the plane was hijacked. <laughs> I don't know. It just sounds crazy. I mean, they they put out those uh, you know hijack signals, the HJK or whatever, right? And, and then they basically uh, validated or verified by you know putting in that what seventy five hundred code, yeah, which universal code, yeah, which apparently is a universal code for hijacking. Yeah, boy. I mean, they were so lucky they didn't get blown out of the sky. Yeah, I mean those 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 planes were sent up to shoot them down. Right. Yeah. The whole thing is just strange. But that that's the mysterious uh, hijacked aircraft that everybody was like talking about. Mm-hmm. But nobody could find it. And I remember right. specifically that the, the people on CNN that they were trying to find the plane. Because, mm-hmm. you know, CNN is very well equipped for these kinds of things. Oh, yeah. I mean, when they send – it's funny. You may not know this, but when – at least back in the old days, when they would – because they tend to send reporters to bad places where their guns going off. Mm-hmm. When they sent those guys in, the story I heard is that they sent them in with a pallet. And on this pallet was basically everything they needed to survive. There was body armor, helmets, gas masks, atropine. They had, they had like a, a Zodiac raft, food, mm-hmm. pretty much everything they could possibly need. So CNN had basically made a career for itself as a cable news channel by reporting this kind of stuff, whether it was Gulf War One or, you know, very – Grenada or Panama, they'd always put some poor person in the middle of it, standing up on the top of the Hilton, watching the tracer fire go into the air. So these, they're you know they're pretty well situated. So they're trying to find this plane. Mm-hmm. Nobody can find the plane. Nobody knows anything about the plane. They just know that there was this plane that was supposedly hijacked, and nobody knows. Yeah, very bizarre. So were there any other planes? Uh- during September 11th that were also sort of being watched or scrutinized? The only one that I'm aware of was the Saudi Arabian 747 that took off, that mm-hmm. carried the entire all elements of the Saudi royal family that was allowed to leave the country. Right. Yeah. <laughs> interestingly. <laughs> interestingly enough. Yeah. The, the timing is, yeah. I mean. Quite suspicious. I mean, what what's the name of the, uh, the doomsday plane? What? Was it uh, Hourglass? I forget the name of it. There's that doomsday plane Mm -hmm. that they launch. Right. That's up there orbiting, and that Saudi 747 is flying right past it. Oh, boy. Yeah. 
crazy times. And, and there, there's some actually, there's some very interesting, um, really emotional, compelling stories about places like Gander and Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. They grounded everything. I don't know if you remember, but there wasn't a plane in the sky except for military. Well, there were all these planes that were out over the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. And so all these planes that are on the out on the Atlantic Ocean, they're like basically, hey, you can't land here. The U.S. is shut down. Mm-hmm. So they're like, what do we do? What do we do? So they started landing all these planes at a place called Gander. Gander's in Newfoundland, and Gander's a, actually the air traffic control. I believe Gander's the air traffic control center for mm-hmm. the Atlantic corridor. So they, they right. run the planes across the Atlantic. Well, uh-huh. they started landing all these huge planes. And they, right. And, and, and the people, the, a, a kind of beautiful thing happened. The, the people of Gander, it's not a big place. So they were running out of places to put all these people. So mm-hmm. the people of Gander, like, opened their houses, and they're like, I've got a couch. You can sleep on my couch. I have a spare <laughs> bedroom. You can sleep in my bedroom. Right. So these Korean people? <laughs> no, they, they were on Whitehorse. <laughs> oh, okay. But but there's, there's a side story. The, the people of Gander, like, opened up their lives, and, they, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't have – they were feeding people in their houses. And, I mean, this amazing thing happened, which is a, truly a beautiful thing. And and you may not know this, but a lot of the people that were stuck there got mm-hmm. together, and they, I guess a few of them found out that a lot of the kids from Gander are kind of stuck there, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so they they their job prospects aren't that great. So they yeah. actually created a lot of the passengers put in money to create like a like a um, scholarship fund, so mm-hmm. the ki- kids coming out of Gander can can go to college. Well, that's good. Yeah, I yeah. imagine there's not too much industry up in the, those neck of the woods. I mean, it's just so desolate. It is. But I just thought it was fascinating that this plane actually existed. Yeah. Again, I, I heard something briefly about it, you know, years and years ago. But it just sort of like uh, went by the wayside like so many other reports whether they be substantiated or unsubstantiated and you know what else is very interesting about this is that it used to be that when that plane would take off it would land in anchorage i think it was anchorage Mm -hmm. before continuing on to new york right Mm -hmm. they used anchorage as like a refueling point right even though it didn't really need it they would stop in anchorage right yeah well after this happened they stopped stopping in anchorage now they just fly straight to new york Oh, they can do that. They have enough. They have enough gas. fuel. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So they stopped using uh, Anchorage as a waypoint after this occurred. Very interesting, Olaf. Very interesting. And there's actually an interesting quote from the prime minister of that time, when they called him up to tell him that this plane <clears throat> was potentially hijacked, and they wanted it to land in Canada. The guy said, "I said yes. If you think they are terrorists, you call me again, but be ready to shoot them down." So I authorized it in principle. It's kind of scary that there's a plane of hundreds of people, and you have to call a decision like that. But you prepare yourself for that. I thought about it. You know that you have to make decisions at times that will be upsetting for the rest of your life. Yep, that's the that's prime true. minister of Canada. Ah. <laughs> uh. Yep, I tell you. But but the question I have is that those pilots knew what they were doing. 
7500 is a universal code. They send this HJK code to the airline. Mm-hmm. So what the hell was actually going on on that plane? <laughs> I know. It's just so bizarre to even do something like that. Well, maybe they uh, heard something about... Uh, you know, the attacks. And so they were somewhat rattled, you know, a little frazzled. And I don't know, maybe there was something on board that I guess gave them enough of a suspicion. Like maybe they did think they were being hijacked. You know, you could have just somebody on the plane saying, you know, just like talking shit or whatever and saying, oh, did you hear about the hijacking? And then, you know, like somebody will say, are we being hijacked? And then tell the flight attendant and, you know, how communication gets. So, you know, who knows? But, you know, how how things kind of get lost in translation. But but they claimed under heavy interrogation that that's not what happened. They claim under heavy interrogation that the whole thing was a misunderstanding, that they never meant anything by it. Yeah. Okay. There was some yeah, sort of but, a miscommunication, and they couldn't understand. And you know, the guy told them to squawk the code, so they squawked the code, and they didn't really think about it. And mm-hmm. it's just the whole thing sounds suspicious. Oh yeah, yeah. Very odd. Very Who odd. Who knows? Ron very odd. There's odd, odd things in the world, Ron Patton. I know. And somehow, you're able to find them. And bring them to light. That's right. That's the Paranoia Podcast, goddammit. Well, thank you so much, Olaf. I enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. That, that, was my, uh, that was my topic. Mm-hmm. So now, now for Idle Chit Chat, <clears throat> the second part of the show, Idle Chit Chat, half an hour. Mm-hmm. So, Ron Patton, you went to East SETI. Oh, yeah. And how was that? East SETI Ranch. Yeah, we were, uh, let's see, the Ground Zero Clip Crew, which includes... Clyde Lewis and myself and uh you know some of the some of the fans like uh, Roger Cluton and he has also helps out with investigations for Ground Zero as well Roger Cluton from Northwest Ghost Recon and Sarah and uh my friend Stephanie we uh got to stay in the uh, guest house at Seti. we were there for about 3 days and uh you know the the first night we were there you know we got to check out the skywatch and you know the uh the conditions were perfect they were ideal it was clear it was dark and uh there's some sort i forgot the name of the computer program that they kind of run through uh as far as like what's in the sky but what it does is it indicates to you whether or not it's a satellite or something you just can't identify. And so there was something like uh, um, nine, no, what was it? Out of the 11 um, objects that were in the air, two were identified as satellites and nine were identified as UFOs. <laughs> so it's always, oh, and there were a few like shooting stars and stuff like that, which aren't included in that. But uh, it's really interesting to see the, the trajectory of the satellites, you know, very constant or whatever. And then some of these UFOs were like going a lot faster than the uh, the satellites. And you could see them like zigging a little bit and zagging, right? And... Uh, um, according to James Gillian, 
those are the uh, Pleiadian starships that uh, help protect and guard the planet. So, man, you know who knows? But uh, did you oh. did you see the did you see? Okay, so just so everybody knows, mm-hmm. <clears throat> last year. I uh, I went to East City with Ron and the Ground Zero crew and hung out there for a while. And uh, mm-hmm. I saw some weird stuff, but we can get to that in a second. But did you see the uh, the green vorte- vortexes near Mount Adams? Um, not green. They were just lights uh, on the mountain. Uh you know, there there's certain portals or entry points, according to James Gillian, where the uh, the starships come in and out of. But I didn't see anything green per se. Okay, so this is what I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, we can discuss the uh, the aircraft in a moment. But the strangest thing that I saw that I I cannot explain is that I saw a green circle appear toward the top of the mountains mount adams Mm -hmm. and i saw a light emerge from it and it was perfectly flat emerge from it and go back into it and the way that it would it kind of looked was like the stargate from stargate sg1 Mm -hmm. but i mean it didn't it didn't have that like watery thing it was just like a green like a greenish kind of circle Mm-hmm. But it was flat, and you could see something go in, but it didn't come out the other side. So I saw things going in and out of this thing for probably a good twenty minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's just you know, it's just so bizarre. Um, and you know, James believes that you know that whole area is sort of like a a vortex, um, and there's different vortexes, you know, all across the globe. Uh, the, the thing that uh, he believes one of the reasons why it's that way where you see so much anomalous activity is because of the uh, dense crystals that are uh, that are uh, underneath the soil in that particular area. And so it seems to be a common theme where you have these very dense uh, uh, crystal deposits. Uh, which apparently, you know, resonate or, or vibrate a certain frequency to where it it opens up certain portals where you can see certain things. And so whether it's UFO activity, a lot of people see orbs. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of photographs of orbs in at Isetti Ranch. And at Isetti Ranch, for those who, you, who don't know where that's located – it's about uh, um, an hour and a half northeast of uh, Portland, Oregon, in Washington, uh, near a town called Trout Lake. And it's right at the foothill of Mount Adams. Very picturesque, beautiful scenery in that area. And so Isetti Ranch is owned and operated by James Gillian. And uh, so it's sort of a camping site, and they have these guest lodges there as well. And there's also uh, various types of conferences, anything from healing to paranormal-type conferences there. But it's just a very serene, uh, peaceful type of setting. Uh, Even uh, Clyde, he was using, you know, he has that cheap camera, right? And uh, he saw something sort of like like a small orb sort of like buzzing around. And it's like, what the hell's that? And so he took a picture of it. And it looks like 
something with wings. It has like four wings, and you you could almost see like a face or something in it. And that's another really bizarre thing that people see are like these little fairies with faces. I mean, I, I know it sounds really out there, but all this is real. All of it's true. What what those really are, who knows? But there happens to be very common sightings in that area. So you have the UFOs, you have the orbs, which zip all over the place, blue orbs, and then you have these fairies. Uh, just well, crazy. So when I was there, yeah, the other thing that I saw that blew my mind Mm-hmm. It's on the side of the mountain, above the tree line, where it's mm-hmm. just rock. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, with a large mountain, there's kind of like a tree line. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, it's just rock. I saw some. I saw a door open, like a rectangular door slide open, like a garage door. Mm-hmm. And there was light behind it. And then I watched it slide shut. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I saw <clears throat> is I saw what's called an aurora. Which is a test, it's an ex, not an experimental aircraft anymore, but it's like a top secret aircraft with a pulse detonation engine. Basically, right. it, it streams fuel out the back and then it ignites the fuel to create pops, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what it's characterized is by this thing called a donut on a rope, where the contrail, there's a solid contrail line, and then there are rings, and those rings surround the contrail line and expand away from the contrail. Mm-hmm. Those rings are where the, the detonations occur. So the plane is pushed forward by a series of detonations. <laughs> so I saw one of those at night, and what I saw was was a thing, a black thing streaking across the sky from east to west, flash with pulses of light, like bing, bam, mm-hmm. bam, 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 bam. And it just shot straight across the sky from east to west. Now what's interesting about those, uh, the UFOs, right? Mm-hmm is that those UFOs that are, are unidentified, right. they, they fly from south, like southeast to the north, like northwest. Yes. That's the trajectory. That's right. right. I didn't think about that. If you, yeah. draw, if you draw a straight line yeah. from, from Trout Lake uh-huh. <clears throat> all the way back, you, you end up at, at that angle, at roughly southeast to northwest, right, you end up at about where Area 51 is. Wow. Huh. And the other thing that's interesting about those planes is that we flashed, we flashed a light at one of those planes. Mm-hmm. We did this, I think, four times. We flashed a light at it. When we flashed a light at it... Um, it changed. It it, it de illuminated itself, and we could see the the we could see the the rough shape. It was like mm-hmm. a black aircraft, mm-hmm. and when we flashed the light at it, it basically turned all the lights off and accelerated. Oh wow! And we did this like four times. Uh huh. Which is interesting. Right, and the other thing that I noticed is that the the aircraft, when we could see them well enough, that when they would pass by a star, right, mm-hmm. that, that we would see a star, the mm-hmm. aircraft would fly between us and the star, the star would shake. The reason is is that the aircraft was projecting the star onto the bottom 
of the aircraft. So the the star that we would see, it it would project that star on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And it was shimmering because it was projecting it on the bottom. And that's an adaptive camouflage that, that I've seen numerous examples of. In fact, you can go on ParanoiaMagazine.com and see articles that I've written about this. Wow. But it's, I've, it, it's, I've never really heard about that before. Yeah, but it's a, they're roughly triangular-shaped aircraft, <laughs> and they, they have this adaptive camouflage where they can project what's above them, below them, at any angle. Right. So it's right. like an omnidirectional camera that kind of captures what's above it, and right. then it projects it below it. So is, you it, see the stars shimmer as it flies over. So isn't that sort of how uh, what stealth technology utilizes, where it sort of reflects or refracts uh, Radar? Sort of what's around them? No, sort of. well, so the thing about stealth technology is that it mm-hmm. it has to do with the shape of the aircraft or the shape of the tank mm-hmm. or the shape of the ship. And right. what happens is is that when you when you hit it with radar mm-hmm. or with sonar, that the way that works is it sends a pulse of of like a ping at it, and then you get the ping back. And when you get the ping back, you can determine the shape. Mm-hmm. When you determine the shape, you can ter- determine the size. Yes. Well, the the angles are are obtuse angles and oblique angles, so it it reflects the ping. Mm-hmm. So you can take something like a stealth bomber, which is fairly large. I know mm-hmm. I had one fly over my house once. It was unreal. I mean, seeing a bat wing fly over your house. It, oh yeah, yeah. It flew over my house down into the valley, and then we have a mountain, and mm-hmm. it flew up the mountain and over it. So it was flying nap of the earth. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> you can take this fairly large aircraft, and you you can try to paint it with radar. And when you paint it with the radar, the actual size of the object you get back is something like a bread box. Mm-hmm. So it reduces the size down so that you think it's a bird. Got it. Right. And it makes it hard. You can't like lock onto it with radar because it keeps deflecting the uh, the radar signal, like the radar pulses. So it deflects them away, so you can't get a lock on it. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Right, but this is what I saw. So all these weird aircraft that I was seeing, they're flying from the southeast to the northwest, mm-hmm. up up toward Alaska. And and they they all fly in a straight line. Well, I mean they zigzag, but they they fly on the Little. same same trajectory. Right. Just watch them again and again and again. I think we saw like twenty of them. Mm-hmm. They just kept flying over and doing zigzags, and you know, mm-hmm. but they weren't doing. They were always flying southeast to northwest. They were never flying in circles or right doing weird shit. Right. Yeah. I mean, when I was when I was younger, when I was in college. I went to UC Davis, and there was a a mass UFO sighting uh, the night before in a place called Dixon. And Dixon's interesting because they used to have cattle mutilations, and all. Well, I guess they still do, and a lot of weird shit happens out there. But the handyman, I was in college, and the handyman for our apartment complex knew I was a bit of a UFO nut, so he brought me this newspaper article from Dixon. I like the whole police force saw this like uh, cigar shaped UFO fly over the fly down the railroad tracks, and they, you know they're all yelling. It's like half the city saw this weird shit, and so I decided with my girlfriend. It was my wife, 
we went out there the next day and we went out and of course you know we hadn't planned to see anything at all right i mean here i am i'm a i'm a ufo dork and i i mean this is my life right and i go Mm -hmm. out there no cameras no binoculars nothing because i don't think i'm going to see anything and this is before camera phones i didn't even have a cell phone nobody had Mm -hmm. cell phones back then right and I, I didn't expect to see anything, so I left my I left my cam my nice my nice Canon camera and and you know my all my uh, radio scanner and all the crap that you usually take. I left it at home. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to bring it. Screw it. Right. I'm not going to see anything. So I we get out there. We drive out in the cornfields. There's a place called the Cattlemen's. If you're ever passing through Dixon and you want a great steak, Cattlemen's, man, it's good. That's the place to be. Oh yeah, I mean it's great, and they have mm-hmm. like chainsaw art like chainsaw bears and all that kind of crap (laughs) cowboy every cowboy themes they've got like like cow pelts on the ground i mean it's it's awesome well anyway we drive out in this cornfield cornfield of course Mm -hmm. and the corn was not super high it was pretty low at that time and we're we're sitting there we get out of the car and we're, we're like watching and we basically watched like six or seven lights in the sky have a dogfight. I mean, they were flying around each other. They were flying in circles. They were flying triangles. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, the little dot would fly in tr- a triangle, then a square, then a rectangle, then a circle. I mean, they're all just, you know, making 90-degree, tur- high-speed 90-degree turns, all this craziness, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then two of them come down. And there are these two radio masts out there that are probably 10 or 15 miles apart. And you can see them clearly because they have all the the, the um, aircraft warning lights so you don't run into them. Right. And so these two objects fly out there, and they start doing, um, like, sprints between the two towers mm-hmm. at low altitude. I mean, we're talking, like, a couple hundred feet. Okay, and in the moonlight, we could actually make out the shape of these objects that they were triangles, and they would go down to the end, and then they'd come back. And there was one on each side of these towers, mm-hmm. and one would go down, and one would come back, and one would go down, and one would come back. And they're kind of doing this back and forth shit, back, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And and they would roll over, so they'd go to the end, roll over, come back, roll over, go down, come back, you know, roll over, roll over. And so, you know, we're just stunned. You know, I mean, you can't talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, even at East SETI, I mean, you can't really talk. I mean, you're watching this crazy stuff in the sky. You can't just cannot communicate because you're just so awestruck by what you're seeing. <laughs> so finally, one of them heads past the tower. And it was the classic Triangle 3 light thing, just mm-hmm. like Belgium. It's coming toward us slowly at like three or four hundred feet it's just cruising toward us and uh we looked at each other and we're like yeah we gotta go now (laughs) yeah and she's like i don't want to get abducted and i'm like yeah i don't really want to get abducted either Uh, yeah but Uh, uh. the stuff you see at Iseti, it's not like that it's not doing the circles and the donuts and the all. No, no, it flies from the southwest, southeast to the northwest in a straight line, mm-hmm. all all night. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. Uh, there was one uh, incident where you had 
two things crisscross though, and that was unusual. I've never seen that before, and I've been to Seti twice, uh-huh. but yeah, literally you had like two things, and they weren't planes. There was something else that, that just crisscrossed in the sky and it was really neat to see you know it's like okay that's a little bit different and you know are are they palladian starships defending the planet are they you know top secret aircraft Mm -hmm. you know i I think they're top secret aircraft for the most part Mm -hmm. but who knows oh I, i will i will tell you another interesting story about mount adams okay so one night I came home and I, I live in the the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And one night I came home and I got out of the car and I got the kids out of the car. I got the wife out of the car. We're walking toward the house and my oldest son says, "Hey, hey, Dad, what's that weird light?" And there was a light, like a, a bright white light that was at high altitude. And by the way, the stuff that he said he is super high altitude. Mm-hmm. They're just little dots. But they're yeah. very clear. Yes. So we see this white light coming in from the from the west, and I'm like, oh, it's an airplane. But it's booking. I mean, it is booking so fast. Okay? So I'm like, okay, this is strange. So I'm like, you know what? Go inside. I'll be there in a minute. And I'm watching this thing. And, I mean, it's booking. And it does an angle turn over my head and mm-hmm. heads north. Okay? So I call up. Chris Reeves, who had gone out to Seti with us before, mm-hmm. I call up Chris. I say, "Hey, Chris, there's a weird light. I want you to clock it." So at the time, he had just gotten off work, and he was driving in commute traffic home in Salem, mm-hmm. Oregon. Right. Okay. He saw that light like 15 minutes after I reported it. Wow. Yeah. Same one. Same one. So it shoots over his head, and it's accelerating. So he calls a friend of his in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Okay? And his friend, five minutes after he – or I think it was like five minutes or ten minutes after Chris saw it, the guy in Seattle sees it. And it's coming from the south, and it's heading north until it hit that – there's a triangle mm-hmm. where it's Mount Hood, Mount Adams, and a Rainier. Right, he saw that thing stop on the on the south side of Rainier, which would have put uh-huh. it in that triangle. Right, and he said it just hung there. It hung there for over half an hour. Right, and then it lowered itself in, down. Now, if you draw a series of straight lines from what, where I saw it to where Chris saw it to where mm-hmm. his friend saw it, guess where it flies straight over? Where Mount Adams. Interesting, and it, and we think it roughly stopped where where Mount Adams is, or in the general vicinity of Mount Adams. Oh, I see. So there might be most likely some sort of uh, like I don't know, flying saucer airbase or whatever you want to call it, right? Possibly in, in Mount Adams, because uh, yeah, the other thing is, uh, I guess if you look at Native American folklore, they they talk about the uh, um, mountain opening up to um, you know for centuries. So it hasn't been just something that's occurred you know over the past few decades. It's probably been going on for hundreds of years. Well, and and I'll give you the kicker of my East City experience. Uh-huh. So we had a really great show on Friday night. So Saturday, during the day, there's not a hell of a lot to do there. 
Right. You can hike around, but most people just kind of sit around. Yeah, talk. Talk, yeah. hang out. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a, a wood, like a wood um, a table. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a picnic table. Yep. So I'm sitting at the picnic tables, screwing with my phone. Mm-hmm. And so Larry Overman, who was there too, starts mm-hmm. elbowing me. And he goes, you got to see this. you got to see this. I'm like, see what? got to see this guy says i'm like shut up larry i'm i'm screwing with my phone he's like no 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 you got to see this you got to see this i'm like okay what is it so we he show he points at mount adams he says look there and it's way up high there's on the right side of the mountain there's kind of like a snow field that's at like a maybe a 45 degree angle uh-huh um it's on the right side there are two black dots the size of ants walking up the side of that snowfield. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how far I was, but that was like 10,000 feet up. Mm-hmm. And I'm miles away. Right. They were the same size as like small trees. Mm-hmm. And they're black. And they're walking up the side, the side of the mountain. Now, at the distance that you are from the mountain, and you can confirm this, at the distance you are from the mountain, if it's a person, it would have been like a black dot. Mm-hmm. Right. What I saw was the size of a small ant. Right. And we watched that for like an hour. Uh-huh. As it, these two, and you could see the gate, like the walk, the way it mm-hmm. walked. Right. These two things climbed up that snowfield. Mm-hmm. Then they got to the top of the snowfield. Then they turned around and looked out, and then they turned back, and then they went down into some sort of a crevasse or something. <laughs> so what do you suspect they were? Bigfoot. Yeah. Sounds like it. It does. Yeah. And I, I cannot explain to, explain it to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything that I saw, I can explain some of it. Right. You know, I think some of it was aircraft. Mm-hmm. But I can't explain that green vortex to you. Right. And it and the, the garage door, I can't explain that to you. Right. But that stuff coming out of the south southeast going northwest, mm-hmm. those were planes. Right. But what I don't understand is that there were so many of them. Mm-hmm. There had to be 15 or 20 of them. Right. And they just kept coming coming and coming the next night on saturday night not so much it was a lot lighter mm-hmm. but i mean to sit there over the space of three or four hours mm-hmm. and watch you know one of these go and doing the zigzag thing another one goes does the zigzag thing another one goes does the zigzag thing i mean it i mean you see so many of them that it's almost like oh there's another another white dot at like 70,000 80,000 feet doing zigzags <laughs> right you know <laughs> it becomes commonplace exactly but you know i also saw uh, weird lights flying around the mountain and i mean it's just a weird place yeah and you know like i said there's uh there's all that anomalous activity going on but then you also have uh, bigfoot hanging out around Eseti ranch as well you know clyde saw one what a couple of years ago there when he was uh you know eating breakfast yeah that's that's when i was there <laughs> yeah i was there yeah he was terrified yeah they yeah. chased after it i guess <laughs> i know 
was getting, <laughs> getting drunk. I guess it was getting drunk eating apples. There you go. Yeah, and then uh, it, uh, Joseph, the Native American guy that's sort of a caretaker there, uh, said he actually, he and uh, Bigfoot ran into each other. <laughs> and, uh, it's like went boom and both fell down and Bigfoot split. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that must have been something else to have actually made contact with Bigfoot. Oh, it's, it's like a, it's a weird place. Yeah. It is a truly bizarre experience. I mean, if if you want to see a UFO, if you want to see something that you can't necessarily identify, yeah, you go there, you will see it. Yep, whether it's uh terrestrial or extraterrestrial too, you know. Right, it's it's all unidentified. Yeah. But uh yeah, I mean I always look forward to to going there each year and hopefully seeing something a little bit different. When I was there the first time last year, uh the, the really weird thing is I started having these uh, as soon as I got there I started having like these weird brain surges from the from my neck coming up to the top of my head and then like right in the center of my forehead. And it's like, I'm like, what the heck? I was thinking like there's something electromagnetic going on. And it was bothering me. It was bothering me. And I uh, um, I was feeling really lightheaded. And uh, so I told James Gillian, like, you know, I was describing what I was feeling. And he just kind of chuckled. He's going, oh, you're getting the downloads. And I'm going, the downloads? Oh, yeah, the, the Pleiadians are giving you some downloads. And like, you know, it happens all the time. <laughs> I go, right. oh, okay, that makes sense because apparently I'm part Pleiadian. So, of course, they're trying to communicate with me. <laughs> you're part Pleiadian? Well, you know, when I go to used to go to those UFO conferences, I used Used to have mostly women come up to me, and I just thought it was a pickup line, right? Because they'd go, "Oh wow," and I go, "Oh yeah," and they go, "Yeah, your energy—it's Pleiadian." <laughs> Going, <All okay>. right. <laughs> if that's sure. a good thing, then sure, why not? Why not? But it, I just find it interesting, though, how uh, you know there's a lot of people who think they're you know part alien or they're aliens inhabiting human bodies and I don't think it's terribly far-fetched it's just that I think maybe some people might take it to the extreme but uh, but uh, hey if if that's what I I have a Pleiadian essence I definitely don't have a Pleiadian body you know I'm not like a you know tall blonde-haired blue-eyed Nordic looking Pleiadian for sure you know I'm like this short little Mixed mutt, so, but I got the Pleiadian energy, I guess. Yep. So you, you got Pleiadian energy, Ron. Yeah. Well, you know, people say I have this like violet aura about me, the healing aura. So, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll accept it. I'll yeah, just accept take it. it. Yeah, for what it's <laughs> worth. <laughs> so there you go. So, Olaf, what kind of alien are you? I have no idea, man. Really? I'm a. So it's not like you have an avian alien. You don't have like hot chicks coming up to you and say, "Ooh, you're you're Lemurian." Or, no, Ooh. I have never had a hot chick come up to me and say, "Oh, okay. you're a Lemurian." <laughs> never happened. Okay. 
I mean, right. I, when I was in my 20s, I got picked up a lot because I was a, a cashier at a <laughs> drugstore. <laughs> but but it had nothing to do with no sort of no i got invited out for a lot of your alien essence no no okay oh well i think it's because i'm six foot two and a half yeah well you you, you need to work on your alien essence we need yeah, to need bring a, that out somehow <laughs> next time i go to east city i need to get some downloads <laughs> yeah sorry. but you know i i went back you know like a few months ago, uh, or actually just last month, and uh, I didn't have that. So maybe I just had those initial downloads, and so now I'm waiting for those downloads to somehow manifest itself. Sure. Like, more money, or, you know, hey, you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Something successful, but... Uh, sure, Ron. But you know what? Paranoia is uh, going to be very successful here. We're going to be pushing more uh, content, whether it be books and magazines. And we have a lot of exciting things in store, so stay tuned. Yes, and we're uploading more documentaries to OSI 74, uh, OSI74.com. We have uh, Sunday is Paranoia Presents, so we have a lot of movies, uh, public domain stuff that I've curated over the past decade. Um, Rare stuff, weird stuff that we've been putting up there, and uh, we've got some more stuff coming. Right, and we may have a uh, a major benefactor or sponsor, a new sponsor for, potentially. Yes. Yeah, so that'll help uh, get more paranoia. We yes. want to spread paranoia to the four corners of the earth, so everybody can be informed. That's right. Okay, so Ron, you got anything cooking? Uh, well, it's pretty much it for now. I'm going to be opening up the Conspira Zone, uh, probably sometime in October and uh, you know the Conspira Zone is sort of a multimedia dungeon full of conspiracy items such as books and magazines it's and a dungeon? Teach- Ron, well, I mean, it's conspiracy it's-, it's supposed to be a bunker Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm Jeez, thinking. Ron, come on, I'm, I'm getting a little kinky. I'm sorry, <laughs> but yes, a bunker. It's in a bunker. It's in a bunker, right? And you have to be blindfolded as we take you down into the yes. bunker. Voice activated doors. But uh, yeah, tech. so I'm gonna open that up, sort of like by appointment only. Um, but uh, it's it's something similar to what I had when I was in San Diego, you know, Paranoia, the conspiracy store. But I'm naming cool. naming this the Conspira Zone. Right on. So we're going to have all kinds of goodies and, uh, you know, for sale. And uh, so I'm kind of looking forward to that. I know a lot of people have been saying, when are you going to open it up? But what I'm doing is I'm just, I'm just increasing the tension. That's yeah. right. So Increase the tension, Ron. Yep. And so by the time it actually opens up, you know, people will be ecstatic and they'll go, yes, yes. I'm so happy to be in the conspiracy zone, but I have no money. No. <laughs> That's not good. No. Don't go to the conspiracy zone without money. No, but, you know, it's it's sort of like a, maybe make it like a little party place too, sure. kind of having like little conspiracy get togethers or what have you. And yeah. have a martini at the conspiracy zone. Yes. Hey, you know, there there is something big. What? Uh, Paranoia Publishing. We put out the uh, compendium of the MK zine. I know. I'm still waiting for it, dude. It's Where coming, is it? It's coming. Okay. Okay. Yeah, those are the uh, 
a couple of magazines and about four newsletters that I put out back in uh, 2003, 2004. MKZine is an examination, of course, of mind control and invasive human experimentation. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, I thought it was pretty good. And I, I'm just really looking forward to, uh, you know, seeing it, you know, in one book now. Because I know a lot of people have been wanting to purchase it. Paranoiapublishing.com. Check it out, folks. And Amazon and Barnes and Noble and anybody who services Ingram, the Ingram uh, book catalog. Go to your local bookstore, demand it. Yeah, do it now. Why wait? Why wait? Read the book. <laughs> read the read the book. And there's more – well, there's going to be more books too. I mean, oh, yeah. No, uh, it's just sort of like we're well, just kind of ramping up and getting things going again. So I'm really excited about it, Olaf. Yeah. I mean we've we've republished um, the uh, the uh, Paranoia Conspiracy Reader Volume 1. Mm-hmm. Put that back in a print. Great. And uh, I'm working on the Volume 2. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I got, Ron. That's all from here, folks. All right, then. Well, I think we should call it quits and uh, let these people have their lives back. (laughs) Oh, shucks. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, everybody, we're going to try to do this on a more regular basis. Yes, and we're going to have actual guests, Yes. for your entertainment pleasure. Yeah, so you can find us at ParanoiaMagazine.com, ParanoiaPublishing.com, ParanoiaMag on Twitter, uh, Paranoia Magazine on Facebook. Uh, like us, love us, uh, follow us. Uh, yeah, check out the website, buy some books. That's it, I think. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. <clears throat> All right, Ron, I think that's it. Yeah. I'm losing Ron. We're being blocked. The transmission has been intercepted. All right. Well, I'm going to call it quits. So uh, keep, keep, keep it real, everybody. All right. Bye, Ron. Thank you for listening to Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Sponsored by Paranoia Magazine. Read it now. ParanoiaMagazine.com Intro theme The Guide was composed by Scott Moon ScottMoon.net Outro theme Fighting Trousers is by Professor Elemental ProfessorElemental.com Voiceover written and performed by Mr. Lobo Host of Cinema Insomnia Watch new episodes on OSI 74. Visit us at osi74.com. We are resuming control. For now. <laughs>